James Dabrowski and Benjamin Pembrose from Sharkmouth, London. We're very happy to join us today on our podcast. We talked about building games in London, a very expensive city for game dev. We discussed how do they hire and retain employees and what can you do to make sure that your team produces incredible results. Greetings, and welcome to the 80-Level Roundtable Podcast. In each episode, host Kirill Tokarev invites video game industry leaders to talk about the world of game development. No topic is off-limits as long as it relates to video game development. New episodes are in the works, so remember to follow us or subscribe and share with someone you know will also enjoy the podcast. Can you introduce yourself to our audience uh, we did a little bit of an interview with James already. I don't think we covered uh, Benjamin on the website. So if you can do like a little intro, that would be great. Sure, yeah. So my name is uh, Benjamin Penrose, and I'm the art director at Sharp Mob London um, and have been working in the industry now for uh, just over 10 years. So I started off my career working at Playground Games uh, and joined the team at Sharp Mob uh, back in 2020. Or 2020, 2020. Yeah. <laughs> like ever since the pandemic, all the years blurred together, right? Um, it was yeah. Op- opening opening day for the studio was the end of September 2020. So we're what about 18 months old now. So still still quite young. Uh, me and Ben actually started uh, our games careers together when Ben was a concept artist uh, and I was a producer. Uh, more years ago than I dare to think now, uh, just as Playground <laughs> Games was opening up to work on Forza Horizon, uh, the first the first Forza Horizon game. So me and Ben have worked together for a very, very long time. We actually, I think we partnered with uh, Playground Games a couple of years ago. We were looking for people for <coughs> Horizon as well as the new Fable that they're working on. But uh, tell me about uh, Shark Mob. So the first question I have... When I learned that there is this new studio coming up, um, is that you actually have offices in London. So um, why London? I mean, it seems like the most expensive place to have a studio right now. It's, 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 a, good, it's a good question, and it probably is one of the most expensive places in, in the UK. Although it's interesting, I think the, um, the uh, salary differences or the salary bands you see in London versus the rest of the UK are getting are getting smaller and smaller uh, over time. But yeah, there's there's a bunch of other costs that make London more expensive than, than other places. Um, however, on both a local scale within London and I think on a national scale being on the UK, uh, there's a lot of benefits. Um, on the UK side of things, uh, we obviously have the video games tax relief system. Um, which really actually helps in bringing down dev costs and making us a little bit more competitive with the rest of Europe um, than, than, you, than you would think, even in London. Um, but the choice to be in London for Sharmob London, for London specifically uh, was for a few reasons. Um, the biggest being uh, access to talent. Um, on, a, on a local scale, looking at the UK, um, you've really got, um, I'd say, three or four major games hubs in the UK. London has one of the biggest games development uh, sense in the world when you look at the number of game developers here across both kind of PC, console, AAA, mobile. Um, the platform holds are here. We've got Microsoft and, and Sony, Google all sat in the city with us. Uh, but also Guildford has a huge games hub. 
and is only 30 minutes away on train. Uh, Leamington Spa, where me and Ben used to work together, is about an hour and a half on the train. And then you've got Guildford, uh, sorry, Cambridge as well, with a good few developers about an hour on the train, with London nestled between those three hubs. So in many ways, within a probably hour and a half commute circle around London, you have access to pretty much the majority of game dev talent in the UK. Um, and I think one other thing we thought, we, we were always going to be open to hiring international talent and we're hiring people from across the globe right now. Um, and London, I'd say more so than anywhere else in the UK, is quite the attractor for people coming from overseas. It's such a well-known city uh, for people who yeah. want to come and live in one of the world's bigger, kind of more exciting metropolitan cities. It's a great place to be. And so we have kind of a lot of success hiring both in the within the UK, but also hiring people overseas as well. And, and for us, that was the number one reason for being here in, in the city. Um, a secondary uh, piece is um, we're increasingly conscious that the AAA side of the games business, and AAA is something that we make AAA games for PC console here at SharpMob, uh, but the AAA side of the business and the games as a service side of the business, this idea that you're not making a game to release it and drop it. You make you release a game and you sustain it for a long period of time. Um <clears throat> Those two worlds are coming together more and more. Uh, and the future, I think it's certain that's going to continue. London does have access to a lot of AAA game developers, but more so it has a lot of access to, I think, the UK's uh, games as a service experience. Uh, so we've got the platform holders here. We have uh, quite a lot of mobile developers like King, Space Ape, Natural Motion. Um, and so we wanted to build our studio from from day one with the mindset of having both AAA thinkers and games as a service thinkers in the building from a very early conceptual stage. And I can't think of a better place in the world to do that than, than London. Um, so yeah, a bunch of reasons, but talent, talent being the primary one. So uh, to kind of build on that uh, conversation, um, what do video game developers want right now? Like you've been probably hiring a lot of guys, like I said, in, in your area <clears throat> and internationally. And um, how do you see kind of like the this internal want of the video game developer change since like when you first started and what's going on now? That's an interesting question. Um, do you want me to go first then or do you want to jump in? No, no, you go for it because that is, that's a, that is an interesting question. I've, like, from a, yeah, it depends, there's a few different angles by which you could approach that, right? There's the sort of the, the type of lifestyle that people want to lead um, yeah, 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 yeah. So my children are walking into the office right now, so probably best for, <laughs> uh, for uh, James to answer that question first. Yeah, so, so my view is the the industry has always been driven by passion from from day one, and and and, and right now it's driven by passion. So I think you have a huge number of people who are in this industry just because they they love games and they want to make games. Um, and I think uh, from way back when the industry started to now, a lot of people choose where they work based on the kind of games those studios are putting out, whether they're passionate about those kind of projects, uh, whether they have a belief in that particular studio to deliver on the ambitions that they're, they're setting themselves. So when we have people come to us, we uh, primarily have people apply who want to make um, large, ambitious, AAA projects that care about storytelling and world building, um, that care about working on games that are fairly technically innovative and advanced as we try and push the boundaries of what's possible on on pc and console um i think where things have changed is whereby where 
I'd say 20 years ago, that was almost the exclusive driver for pulling people to companies. It is becoming a bit more balanced now. Yes, you want to work at a company where you're super passionate about the projects, but you also want to work at a company that's going to look after you as a person, that's going to surround you with a nice environment, with a team, a group of people that you uh, really, really want to work with, that thinks carefully about your your mental health and your work-life balance and your life outside of the office as well as in the office. And, and the understanding that, um, sure, our people are passionate about making video games, but they have, as Ben just proved, children at home to look after and uh, just the desire to do lots of other things uh, around around what you do day to day. So these days, I think when you're starting a game studio and you're looking to hire the best talent, you you 100% do need to think about how you make a game that's going to inspire people, both for your new talent and the people you're eventually going to sell to. But I think these days you really need to think long and hard about um, your uh, employee value proposition. What's going to what's going to make people want to be at your studio and surrounded by your people more so than potentially other places that they they might work. Yeah, I think I, the only thing I'd add to that really is um, that I think as well as the thing that I've noticed more and more as we've spoken to people and sort of brought them on board at Sharp Mob is, is how people resonate with a passion behind the project for the, the, the people sort of setting the studio up. So in, in that case, myself and, and James and a few others, um, you know, there's, there is definitely a, a potential sort of direction to go in where you're chasing the next big fad or, you know, you're, you're sort of emulating something else that you've, that you've seen a success in. And I think uh, people, like developers, I think, are, are kind of a little bit, um, they're, they're, you know, they're super sensitive to that sometimes and a bit wary of it. And I think sometimes a developer coming along who's actively pushing for something that they're super passionate about themselves, I think, is almost as much of an attraction for those people as, as being passionate in the game from their side. Like quite often, there's, a, there's not always a clear uh, correlation between the games that people play and are really passionate about from a consumer level and necessarily what they want to work on. Uh, and, and sometimes I think that is, that's almost like the bigger attractor is the idea that you're going and, and working on something at a place where there's, there's a high level of ambition and everybody's really excited about what it is they're producing. Cause it's infectious, right? You know, it ends up sort of, yeah. you, you get sort of brought along on that journey as well. I think. Um, I have a question on, on top of this. So when you're having those interviews with these passionate guys, do you feel like you have to sell your project to them just as they have to sell themselves to you? Do you feel like there's this need to, you know, explain that this is a great game and that people are going to love it and so on? Yeah, I think... Um... It's, I mean, it's definitely a two, it's a two-way street. I think, you know, it's, it's as much about the studio or your potential employer doing all the things that James is talking about in terms of looking after you and doing all of that great stuff and also having something that's um, exciting to work on and that the, the developers are really passionate about. And, and you know, we're in a world now where I think the, the industry is growing so quickly at the moment with so much energy behind it that people have choices. You know, if they've got a good track record and they've you know worked on some good stuff they're they're a highly um valued person in the industry so, and they've got they've got plenty of choices and decisions yeah. you know they could go to different countries they could go um work on different types of games like so yeah i think there's there's always going to be an element of um you know them interviewing us as much as the other way around 
Yeah, so it's very true. It's it's as Ben said, for most senior talent right now, they're not they're not if they're jo- if they're looking for a job, they're not just talking to you, they're talking to a bunch of people. Because we're definitely in a place in the industry right now where a lot of companies are expanding. There's a lot of demand for games content and there's relatively few of the right people around, particularly for specialist roles. Um, and a lot of companies um, will have fairly similar, similar benefits propositions and things like that. Cause we all benchmark against each other and we might try and outdo each other a bit, but um, that's kind of, that's kind of some standards there. And so as part of our interview process, um, we we quite early on in the process will put somebody under NDA just so we can make sure that uh, the sensitivities around our projects are secure, and we'll then pitch to them. Um, and as Ben mentioned, that, that's a bit of a two way street. We want to make sure that well, for for one, if the person is super excited in what we're doing, they're more likely to come and and join us. But also, we love the idea that people coming to work on our projects are super passionate about what they're coming to work on because I think you always get the best creative work out of somebody who is is passionate about what they're what they're doing. And I think it leads to a good a good vibe and a good atmosphere in the office when you can feel that sense of of passion. And I do think here at um Charmel Blunden, while we can't share much about what we're working on right now because it's such an early stage of development, um, I think one of the biggest attractors for people when we've been uh taking them through the interview process that's allowed us to grow relatively quickly given that we're only 18 months old, is that the project that we're working on and that we're talking to people about as they go through the process is super inspiring to people. Um, and it, it's, it's, I mean, it's been feedback we've had from a lot of the people who've come and joined us is one of the primary reasons they joined us, if not the primary reason is the project that we're, we're looking to build here at the studio. So I have a, a question. It's a, a bit of a sensitive topic. So if you don't want to answer, um, then don't answer. So the the question is uh, this. So how does compensation work in video game companies? Like um, I work work and live in Los Angeles, right? And I know a lot of people from different studios. And uh, I know that at the beginning of their careers, (laughs) if they're in Santa Monica somewhere, they usually live with a roommate and (coughs) sorry they bike to work you know it's not that they're living a very lavish uh lifestyle right Uh, i also know people who work at like companies like apple or like naughty dog when they are higher kind of like in this career ladder and they're (laughs) they're doing fine i guess you can you can say that um so how does it work in in London, because I know, as, as you said, London is kind of expensive <clears throat> and, uh, you know, rent is kind of expensive. So how does this comp work and is it even important for developers? So, so my experience is um, different games companies have different ways of working out what they want to uh, pay people. Um, at Sharkmob, we, we, wanted to, we wanted to make sure that... Um, our benefits system and, and how much we pay people was 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 well thought about, was based on data and was fair across the studio. So if somebody said, why do I get paid X, Y, Z, or why does this other person get paid this? We could have a transparent conversation with them because it was based on something uh, meaningful. Um, so in the very early days, when we were only maybe one or two months old, we set out to build a kind of a grading structure for the company from 
a new graduate joining us as a junior right through to a senior director. Um, and we, um, there's, I know this is true in the UK. I'm not sure how, what global this is, but there's a few salary benchmarking surveys um, that look at both the games industry, the wider tech industry, the wider creative industry. Um, and we purchased data from two of those companies to get a really good understanding of um, what is the kind of minimum that people are paying, what's the maximum, what's the average and that kind of thing. Um, and at Sharmob, as, as a new company, we wanted to be incredibly competitive uh, in our in our offering, particularly here in London, and particularly because we wanted to grow quite quickly. Um, so we built salary bands built around the data that we we're seeing that felt like it was it had a competitive edge in the market. And we did the same with our wider uh, benefits package. Um, the way those bands look is they tend to have a midpoint that is data-driven and then a, a, a kind of bottom end and a max end that's just kind of extrapolated out from that midpoint. Uh, and when we hire somebody, we first assign them a band. We then determine their kind of competency within that band and that relates to what they get paid based on data or what they get offered based on uh, data. Um, and that's what we use internally for um, both hires and pay reviews as we as we grow. We love this idea that it's data-driven, it's based on the market, that every, it's fair for everybody, um, and it's explainable because we have a system behind it. Whether that's true for the rest of the games industry, I don't know. I do know of a few of the companies that, that do the same, um, but I, I, can't, I can't speak for the most. It has worked very, very well for us. Um, it's just something that we know we need to keep on top of. Every year we need to go and take another look at the data to make sure that we are remaining in the place we want to be. Um, what about linking kind of the comps and all the other benefits to performance? Like, do you have any systems in place that kind of link those together? We do, yeah. So uh, we have um, we have a profit share scheme here at SharpMob. So uh, every member of staff shares in the success of the projects we make. Um, I say it's profit-based. So once we release a project, um, uh, initially we'd look to recoup our costs or uh, pay off any anything we have to pay off. Um, but at the point where the, the, the project starts generating profit, profit, that is shared among every person that has put time into that project. Um, because we're so early on, uh, we haven't got to a stage yet where we can see quite how that works. Uh, we've seen it work very well at other companies that, that do this. There's, there's a, it's not a, I wouldn't say it's a common thing within the industry as far as I've seen it, but where it has happened, it's, it's proven to work quite successfully in some places. And those kind of benefit schemes can either not pay out if you're not successful or can really heavily pay out if you, if you happen to create the next fortnight which uh, I'm sure we hope we, we all will. Um, and that's something we did want to certainly have as part of our benefits package. We wanted to make sure that your salary um, that you receive month on month was competitive and allowed you to live a good life here in London. But there was that potential to push, to push beyond that if the projects that we work on are successful. And that sense that everybody who works on something gets to share in that, in kind of the outcome. I, I'm, I was actually a big advocate of profit sharing myself. I was pushing this on all the GDC talks that I did the last Good, couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, th I, th I think it's an amazing way to to set things up. Just it just it it means that everybody shares in the success, right? That you, that they've all collectively worked on. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been in places where they've done it in the past, and it it's always been it's amazing when you do really well, right? Because it's just great news for everybody. Yeah, I mean it's great news for everybody, and I feel like it's a more <clears throat> transparent. 
way of uh, you know complimenting your staff rather than you know you need to get a certain score on Metacritic. Like if it's like over eighty nine or is like below ninety five, and which is kind of super subjective anyway, and it doesn't say much, say much, right? We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomized genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. Then that all has to be an action adventure. Yes. Ooh, dear. Yes. And sometimes it doesn't quite work. And you you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative. A construction off. The way, the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely. Entirely. Check out The Gaming Blender on all your favourite podcast platforms now. That's very true. On the, uh, on the user reviews as well. <laughs> Just to make it extra tough. So let's talk a little bit about the people that you're hiring. You said that the kind of London and the areas around it, they have a lot of very good <coughs> talent. <clears throat> How did this happen? Like, how did it develop? How did England and kind of UK became this big hub for game development? That's a really good question. Um, and I'd say I probably don't know the history as well as I should for specifically the London area. But I know, I know the UK has been making games since the beginning of the games industry. Um, and we've got a lot of... Um, we've got a, a lot of these kind of very old institutions that have been in the... Uh, games industry since very early on in the beginning. I know, I know, Codemasters comes to mind as a, a studio that's been in the, running in the UK now since I don't know the eighties. I'm guessing I'd, I'd have to go on Wikipedia and, and, and look it up. But there was a, there was a few of the, there was a few of those studios, and I think if you look at the major games hubs around the UK, there tends to have been one or two of those big studios, and they tended to have been founded in people's bedrooms, uh, and they just grew into the giants that that they now are. Um, and then over the years, we've just seen a lot of breakaways from those studios. So uh, if you go to Leamington, you had Codemasters. Um, you had um, uh, the guys that started Blitz that worked in the Dizzy games way back when. Um, and I think off the back of that, I know, well, Playground Games was started by a bunch of ex-Codemasters people. Uh, I'm guessing... So freestyle, I guess, was the same. But you see, a lot of these kind of studios over the over the decades have just spun out of the the first big company that was down there. Um, I think in Guildford, uh, I know we had Bullfrog back in the day, um, and a, a ton of companies have spun out of that over the years. Um, the London scene, I'm, I'm, I say, I'm not I'm not quite familiar with the history. Um, I know. Uh, kind of Sony has had a, a place here for, for a, a good long time. There's been a, a bunch of other studios that have been around for a long time. Um, but what we've seen in London over recent years is a very large influx of international companies moving into London. Um, I say we've got uh, quite large offices in London for Natural Motion, who are part of Zynga, of uh, Space Ape, um, who are now part of the Supercell family, uh, King, um, say Sony and Microsoft are here. We've got Sega uh outfit just just on the outskirts of the city and there's probably a bunch of others that um aren't coming to mind right now so i think i think london um has had companies been around for a while but we've also seen a huge amount of international growth in london over the over the last 20 years so when you think about 
uh, games built in uh, Britain and the uh, video game developers who work there. Um, there's something peculiar about them. Like, if you look at the Japanese games, they have their own kind of vibe. Like, the, the pauses are probably too long in the cutscenes, right? If you if you look at the American games, they're like... You, you can see people who are doing them. Especially, like, if you look at big... <coughs> Call of Duty and that kind of stuff. So, when I look at... Uh, Stuff like that you mentioned, like at uh, the games that uh, Bofrog was making, <clears throat> at the Fable series, at the Horizon series, like all those, um, a, a lot of games came from UK, right? Um, what do you feel is like this peculiar thing that kind of unites all of them? Uh, that is that is a really good question, and one I've been debating with both myself and other people over the past uh, few months, because I actually think... Um, the UK games industry um, doesn't brand itself as well as it used to anymore on the international stage. I've often thought now, if you think of like, where's the home of really serious AAA game development, you probably go to the West Coast of the US uh, with your Naughty Dogs and your um, Sony Santa Monica's and things like that. Maybe a bit in the Nordics as well. Um, so Sharp Mob was originally a spin-off of Ubisoft Massive as a bunch of the Ubisoft Massive uh, leadership team broke away to start Sharp Mob. Um, I think uh, the UK used to be a triple A. Oh, we were perceived as a triple A powerhouse. Uh, there's been a, a, there's been a, I think, was it about 10 years ago? There's quite a drain of talent from the UK across to the United States and Canada as uh, the industries um, in North America started to expand and there were a kind of a bunch of jobs uh, over there. Um, and I've heard a lot of people from outside of the UK talk about the UK being the racing game country now because we had BlackRock, Bazaar, Playground Games, Codemasters, like more than anywhere in the world, I think we make a lot of racing games. Um, and that's definitely true. Uh, but as you say, there's been a, a ton of these other games sprinkled throughout our history. Um, the Bullfrog games, the Lionhead games, I'm conscious that Ninja Theory are yeah. working as well, right? Yeah. Such a like massive, I mean, just that, that period sort of, you know, during the N64's sort of heyday, everything they made was a smash hit and it was also varied as well but that's that that's the thing that i i like sticks out to me when it comes to the uk gaming scene it's just i mean you're right there's definitely like a bit of a pull towards certain genres like racing but but actually just the there's a real breadth and it and and also it never really sort of apart from racing really it never really manifested in particular sort of clear-cut genres like you might get in other territories like especially if I think about Rare and Bullfrog and the sorts of games they made, they were sort of, you know, they were kind of all by themselves in a lot of ways. They were, it's not like they were trying to emulate anything in particular. It's just they had this, I mean, that's one of the things that I loved about Rare actually as a studio back then, the fact that they, they used to produce so much great stuff, but everything that came out of that place felt like it had its own sort of unique identity. So, well, I mean, there was a touch of Rare sort of, magic or a certain way they approached visuals which used to permeate through you know from title to title but generally speaking you know you look at something like jet force gemini and compare it to <laughs> golden eye and banjo kazooie and they're just all over the place it was great yeah it's a bit of there's a bit of um i don't know british culture and british humor in a lot of those those games. Yeah, a, lot, a lot of that as well i've spoken to quite a few people who feel like over the years the uk has lost i think in the earlier days there was a lot of character narrative 
adventure style games fable being a great example mm-hmm. and i've heard a few people say that's kind of that perception around the world has dissipated a little bit and the west coast of america has kind of started taking over that crown um and i i believed that myself for a little bit until i start to remember that we've got rockstar north in the uk making the grand theft auto series uh you say you have ninja theory in cambridge who've been working on kind of hellblade and various other games the fable series is is still being brought to life by playground games uh, at the moment down in Guildford, you've got Supermassive working on uh, their very cinematic character-based games. Um, so I think, to, to Ben's point, I think we've ended up in a place in the UK where rather than being known for a specific genre of game, we just make a lot of different types of games. And in some ways, we just need to rework how we brand ourselves on the international stage because we do do AAA, we do do mobile, we do do games of service, we kind of touch every genre. Um I am starting to see, I think, a bit of an, just talking around the various years, a bit of an increase or a bit of a return to character story-driven gaming here in the UK. And um, there's a bit of hope that we can lure some of our uh, expat Brits that have gone over to the States <laughs> and back again uh, to, to rebuild the UK games industry to its former glory. Um, and I hope, well, it's part of our mission at the moment to do just that. Uh, I, I like that you mentioned all of that because when I was still kind of reading those magazines about the Europe with video game reviews, people were, I had the, I had a feeling they had some kind of like a, a different attitude toward games made in UK. Like the, whenever like the Bitmap Brothers uh, published anything, they were like, oh, that's different. That's a different, like, and you know, Bofrog and all the other guys. It felt like it's, I, I remember there were like pages and pages and pages on those games because they were just so <clears throat> out of the blue, like, you know, whatever Peter Molyneux was doing. <coughs> and uh, you mentioned Rockstar, which is also like a huge, uh, incredibly big franchise. Yeah, I have started to wonder a little bit lately about whether um, the way you're development community in a country is perceived is based on the characters of the games that you make so if i think of um the west coast of um, america even if i just look at la you've got kratos coming out of seven santa monica you have nathan drake coming out of the uncharted series and so it starts to paint a picture because you can you can put these these hero faces in a location and actually if i look at the uk game scene for the last kind of five ten years some great triple a games have come out of the uh, country but I struggle to think of two. Lara Croft came out of the UK a long time ago, but I struggle to think of like who are the hero game faces of the UK games industry these days. Um, I think that's part of the perception challenge we have. Like I think I still think of Mario and and Sonic when I think of Japan. Um, yeah, and I think that maybe that comes down to the other thing that we were talking about, right? It's, it, it, it feels like you don't very often in the UK get that thing where there'll be a a particular game that comes out that then sort of gets multiple iterations of it where you sort of get a character sort of developed over time. It just, um, it tends to be more like people put all of their effort into telling this fresh, cool story. And that's almost where I think a lot of, that's where a lot of values uh, gained, you know, is this idea that you're creating something new and fresh and that it's, it's something for people to get their teeth into and then experience something new. And that's, and then, yeah, and then it's sort of like moving on to the, the next thing, the next cool, fresh idea. Well, um, I have a couple of questions, not really connected with that, but I 
think we can move to like the next chapter is um, what skills are currently relevant for for you when you're hiring like mm, as an example um, a lot of people right now are big on procedural generation they want to have people who know Python and then they can generate whatever worlds buildings and so, on. so what are you guys looking for because this is an, an advice for people who are trying to get a job in the industry and they want to know what to learn yeah, yeah. That's a great question. I, like this is this is something that I've spoken at a bunch of different places about at universities and things. I think there's there's almost like two aspects in terms of the artwork. Anyway, the, the way I I would think about answering your question, the the first is you know what what are we looking for? I think for us specifically because because we are a AAA studio and we're really looking to push quality across across the board in a bunch of areas. I think the art production naturally sort of drifts towards this place where you're looking for specialists in particular areas, so people who really understand a particular part of game art production um, to, to a level where they've obsessed over it for a, for a bunch of time or they're willing to become super obsessed around a particular thing and become great at producing this particular type of uh, content, this particular type of work. Um, and then alongside that, you know, the, because you're putting so much effort into making sure that everything is great, there's always this sort of issue of how you produce that stuff at scale at AAA, which is where I think naturally you start finding people sort of wanting to make the most of those procedural tool sets, you know, like using Houdini to do some really great stuff so that you can, you can keep your quality bar where you want it, but you can do it at a, a pace where you're not going to take 30 years to produce the thing that you want to put out. Mm. And I think, um, I think that's you know that, that that ultimately becomes another area where we are super focused. So I think you want you want those craftspeople, you want those people who are you know on an artistic level they're they're super passionate about sculpting the human form or replicating something about environments at a, a certain level of fidelity. But then you you need to find that other skill set, which is this ability to really get in in the weeds with some of these great new tools that allow you to do great things at scale but quite often and not always but you know quite often those those tend to be skill sets that exist in sort of separate places you know you'll find people that are really great at the sort of more craftsmanship artistic side of things and people who naturally gravitate towards the more um technical side of things and you know if you're super lucky you'll find people who can do a bit of both and bridge that gap you know that's i think that tends to end up being that uh, elusive person we call a technical artist you know that they're uh, <laughs> super hard right. people to find <laughs> yeah i i yeah i agree with ben we um i mean there's i'd say across every single games company and over the last of the entire history of game development there's a lot of the same roles that we've always needed we always need programmers specifically C++ programmers, but um, depending on your studio, uh, kind of good programmers need to cross multiple different languages, good environment artists, good level designers, good game designers. Um, so th those those people are always in, in very high demand. There is currently, I say, a, a big skill shortage in the industry around certain specialist roles, rendering engineers, uh, Ben mentioned technical artists, UI artists, those very kind of specialist art and engineering and, and also design roles. Um, another example on the design side is 
um, we, we've been looking for a combat designer um, for the studio and finding people who can, can, can who have experience doing a particular flavor of combat can be, uh, again, quite a niche or, or challenging role to fill. Um, that said, I, I don't know if you agree with this, Ben, but I always believe it's more important to find somebody who has strong fundamental skills rather than specific tool set knowledge because a talented developer in a certain field will be able to teach themselves a good tool. Uh, um, and so I would always rather take a, say, incredibly skilled environment artist who has a passion to learn Houdini over a an artist who has maybe weaker fundamental skills but has a couple of years of working with Houdini. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think I generally generally agree with that. Still, I think, and it's something that I I, I always push when I go to the universities. You know, you see you see students getting really obsessive over the you know the newest way to use a particular plugin in max or or photoshop and actually the thing that would really push their work to the next level is if they attended a life study class every every couple of days you know and, and sort of learned the, the craft on the underneath i think i think with some of the more um technically focused areas these days especially with the introduction of things like houdini i do think that almost becomes it's almost becoming its own sort of subset of of creative yeah, things uh, like it's you know it's it, <laughs> that sort of way of being able to construct those those systems is almost as much of a, a skill as being able to you know do an amazing job in that life study class that I was just mentioning a second ago. Aside from the technical skills as well, I'd say particularly for our field of development, the kind of AAA space, the teams are getting larger and larger and larger. Um, our internal team is probably going to end up somewhere around two hundred and fifty people. We'll be working with a bunch of external codev partners around the world. So being um, being somebody who engages well with a big wide team and interacts well with the team is absolutely critical these days, particularly for for our kind of flavor of game development. And we um, we strongly believe that the the very best creative output comes from teams who feel comfortable and trust each other enough to enter into healthy creative debate. So uh, if you and me have a disagreement about what the right creative outcome is, we feel comfortable having that conversation and trying to drive the best answer and and, and the best conclusion. And um, so I think people who are good at uh, taking feedback, uh, providing feedback themselves and having kind of that two-way feedback conversation is is super important regardless of the discipline uh, you, you work in right now. Um, James, yeah, it's uh, about the soft skills, but you, you kind of answer that you need to, um, you need to communicate, you need to figure out what other people think, you need to uh, find ways to give feedback that uh, people actually understand what you mean and not get offended, and um, kind of coming from there, um, probably the last question for you guys. So, um, James and Benjamin, you're both managers, and I don't, I can't find a more challenging workplace to manage rather than a video game development space because there's these two categories of people like there are um, these <coughs> artists let's say right and then there is uh, analytical people who are like programmers and they are they have completely different mindsets um uh, uh, they live their lives very differently i i know that it's kind of like an uh, oversimplification obviously <clears throat> it's not like 100% true, but you can see the differences. Um, so my, my question is like, in this environment, how do you actually get any work done 
and make sure that they are they are you know they don't kill each other yeah um so not not just with with kind of the artists and designers and engineers something that we actively pursue is try to find a a team with a pretty diverse mindset and kind of ways of thinking with the philosophy that if everybody does get on you get the best again creative solution because you get all the ideas on the table you'll stress test them uh, through debate and then the best answer comes out of it so you'll always have the best creative solution if you have the the broadest set of creative thinkers uh, in the room um, but as you say that can be a big challenge because those people are, are, are prone to fighting um, and I think there's a couple of there's a couple of things uh, we certainly do and uh, philosophically that you can do to try and um, help these various diverse thinkers uh, work collaboratively together. I think a big one for me is that even if you think differently and you approach problems differently, you're working towards a singular goal that you um, are aligned on. Part of that is, I think, having a team who are passionate about the project and are passionate about video games in general. I've had a debate for years with people about whether you can be a good games developer uh, if you don't like games or you don't play games. I'm of the camp that thinks you will, the best game developers are people who play games and love games. It's like, how do you be a movie director if you've never watched a film? Um, I, I actually struggle to understand the idea of a, a, a good game developer who doesn't care about the, the, the product they're making. So we as a team tend to focus on hiring people who love the field they're working in and, and, and love the projects that they're working on. So um, whether you're an engineer, an artist, designer, or however you think, we're, we're looking to have that singular focus. Um, we intentionally built our studio um, with a the leadership team, the director group, uh, particularly the creative director group um, in Upfront, because we wanted to make sure that we always had a clear vision uh, that we could articulate to the team and work with the team on. So again, people knew what we were pointing towards and, and, and gunning for. And so there's that singular set of goals that that people were working towards. And then a really big thing for me is, is um, regardless of how people think and approach problems, um, hiring people who are open-minded, who are good communicators, who are humble. Uh, we, we don't particularly want anybody in the studio who is... Um, is uh, arrogant or self-interested um, and focusing attention on really building high degrees of trust within a team. So even if kind of we collectively disagree about how to approach a problem, we feel comfortable putting our thoughts on the table and debating it. And we hope that in most cases, teams will be able to come to the right conclusion themselves. Um, but one of the reasons that we have a kind of very experienced leadership team at the studio is to also help mediate those conversations should they become uh, kind of not self-conclusive within the existing group. So far, I'd say in, in 18 months, we're, we're now coming close to 60 people on the team. We, it's been working quite smoothly, I think. We haven't had, <laughs> nobody's killed each other yet. Nobody's, no, yeah, nobody's, nobody's been killed. <laughs> yeah, no death on the studio. Yeah. Um, but we have a bunch of tools that we, we use for that. I mean, um, just what, two, three months ago, Ben, um, we stress test some of these exercises on ourselves and we did things. We, we went through an exercise called the Management Drives Profile um, as a group of leads, which is intended to show um, as an individual what drives me as a human being um, and what, what, what frustrates me or what irritates me in other human beings. Uh, and so we all went through this exercise, compared them, and you could suddenly see where we had conflicting points or, or challenges the leadership team why in these profiles it allowed us to have an honest conversation about some of these uh, challenges we'd had in the past and, and, and bring them to the surface 
And by going through those kind of exercises, we're learning to be more kind of open and transparent with each other uh, as human beings. We're learning to, I think, be more vulnerable with each other. We're getting good at saying, for example, I'm not very good at this. I need some help or um, I've, I've done a terrible job on this. Come come, give me a hand with this. Or, uh, or, so or we even can... slightly better at understanding how some of the stuff we do might wind somebody else up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, that, was, right. that was almost like the biggest insight. It was like, oh, okay, this is why this always uh, upsets you it's because of yeah. this thing. So I won't do put, that again. We put a huge amount of thought right now into how do you develop teams uh, to to kind of trust each other and really enjoy working with each other, despite the fact they will come at problems in very, very different ways. Um, and as I say, we're stress testing these things ourselves, and then we'll roll them out with the team. Uh, but it's a, a philosophy that we want to grow the team around. Yeah, I'd, I would just add to that as well by saying, like, to your question, you know, about all those different groups. I think um, it, so. It is a bit of a generalization, which is probably a bit unfair, but it is also kind of true. Like on average, you definitely get, you know, you sort of more um soft uh like what's the, what's the word i'm looking for like uh, <laughs> sen- more sensitive sort of artists and you're slightly more like um driven slightly egomaniac sort of design teams and you're more introverted engineering teams but I actually i think it's one of the things that makes um working in games so much fun like i from my point of view anyway you know i think as as a you know a director or a leader or a manager you know so much of your time ends up being not necessarily stopping people from killing each other but but trying to make those different worlds work with each other in a way that is productive and it's 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 fun do you know what i mean like I, so much of my time in this industry has been sort of literally sort of running around talking to people at different you know at their desks and seeing how the work's coming on and and working out the right ways in which you can key that person into something somebody else is doing and turn it into something great you know that's it's the it's the the best bit of the job in my opinion yeah we're actually also very very lucky that if we get to the stage where we can't answer a question we we come into a severe deadlock um sharp mob has its own in-house user research facility and we're building the same in our new london studio that we move into in a few weeks time so we can always validate questions with the with the, the people we're making the games for. And at the end of the day, I think the right answer is whatever makes our customers enjoy the games the most and want to want to play them and want to engage with them. So throughout our entire development process, we're going to be making sure that we're validating the decisions we make with our target audience. Um, and that would be a very good way, I think, of, of answering any deadlock debates when it, when it happens, answer it with actual play testing and, and data. Awesome. James and Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us today we're out of time unfortunately i would love to continue this conversation for another hour but probably you have other stuff to do as well so thank you so much um we'll make sure to post uh, whatever positions you have open and link, <coughs> and link to the website so people can check out <laughs> yeah thanks for enjoying another episode of the 80 level roundtable podcast check out upcoming episodes on the 80 level website at 80.lv Join our career site at 80.lv slash RFP and share our podcast with friends and on your social networks.